We're blessed to have Brother Freddie Clayton with us tonight from the Dunlap congregation. Freddie has... Uh, how long have you been over there now, Freddie? 30 years. Nearly 30 years. And probably more importantly, he has been fooling around with Roger Campbell over here at McCrory uh, Youth Camp for how long? 18. Y'all got that started together, didn't you? And uh, if anybody can withstand that, you can do just about anything. But he's been doing a wonderful work over there at the Dunlap Congregation. And uh, I appreciate uh, the good work that he's doing over there. And if you want to hang around for just a few moments after services, I have one of the funniest stories that you will ever hear about Brother Freddie Clayton when I was up at the uh, Potwell Congregation that you'd ever want to hear. And I would be happy to tell that to you. I don't know if Freddie knows about it. I told his wife about it a few years ago. But uh, I'd be happy to tell you. I've, I haven't been brave enough to tell Freddie what I did to him. But uh, I'd be happy to tell anyone else. But uh, Freddie is, uh, was, uh, was kind enough to agree to come and uh, speak on the Summer Series. And I appreciate him so much for that. And he's going to be speaking tonight on... The shadow of superior things, superior to Moses. Come speak to us, brother. Yeah, the invitation was actually two years ago, of course, and because of COVID and and all that went along with that, that uh, we'd rather not had to deal with for sure, and hopefully we'll never have to deal with it again, uh, then we had to forego last year and then have the opportunity this year. And so since it is the case that I had this lesson assigned for two years, it ought to be really something. <clears throat> but I was told, uh, uh, I talked to Brother Ron Gilbert. I'm glad that he didn't say that I'd run around and used to lift weights with Ron Gilbert. Or that really throws me under the bus. But uh, I talked to Ron earlier in the week, and he said, Freddie, he said, let me tell you something. He said, I set the bar so high that if you just show up, you're all right. So, uh, and that's what falls in line sort of with the, the thoughts of this particular lesson and really the thoughts of this whole book, the book of Hebrews. Sometimes we refer to it as the book of better things. And of course, there's been many commentaries that use that as the title, The Better Things of Christianity. The better things associated with Jesus Christ. But interestingly, that word better, you know, it's a matter of a context as to what we see from the word better. You know, we don't want to be guilty of what is condemned by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, of comparing ourselves among ourselves and commending ourselves by ourselves. Because Paul says on that occasion, people are not wise to do that. I've always said, you can find somebody sorrier than you if you just hunt far enough. You might have to go out of the county, but you can find somebody that's more despicable, more unloving, more unkind than you are. But what have you done when you find somebody like that? So you're better than them. So what? You know. So what if you're better than somebody that's really not worth anything anyhow? So the idea of better things then, you got to have something to begin with before there can be a superior and of course, in this particular text, if you have your Bibles handy, it'd certainly be beneficial to you to turn to the third chapter of the book of Hebrews because that's what we're going to be looking at very extensively. And of course, we're going to be making the comparison and seeing the comparison between 
none other than Moses, the great lawgiver of Israel, and then the Lord being better than Moses even. Now that should pique people's attention, certainly so, because of the contrast and the the different way in which we could see the similarities between both those individuals and the responsibilities that God gave both to, to Moses and to Christ as well. And outside of the context here in the third chapter of the book of Hebrews, we have a, a number of different instances in which inspired writers make the comparison. Let's, let's look at them very quickly. For example, in John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, <clears throat> we find just as... Moses lifted up the snake or the serpent in the wilderness. Even so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. So there we have a reference to the period of time in which the children of Israel murmured and complained. They said they'd rather be back in Egypt. They had good green vegetables to eat back there. And here they've come out in the middle of the wilderness and they're going to die there. And of course their murmuring resulted in God sending poisonous serpents among them. And when they were bitten, they died. And so it was Moses who petitioned God on their behalf, said, what can we do about this sad situation here? And of course, it was to put that brass serpent on a pole, and everyone that looked on it, then they would be saved from their snake bite. Now, I've oftentimes tried to make a point relative to the type of faith that was necessary to be saved from snake bite there. If someone actually believed that God was going to be able to save their lives, by providing them a snake that they could look on, <clears throat> how many of them you think would have stayed in the tent and said, you know what, I believe God can save me here just as much as He can out there? I doubt if that would be the case. They'd have somebody help them get out there if they're unable to walk yet. They'd have to demonstrate their faith by actually doing something. That is, get to the point where you can, in fact, look on that snake. So even with that example, obviously, the principle that's oftentimes promoted and is believed by far too many people of, of salvation by faith only simply doesn't hold up even in this example. But just as Moses lifted up that serpent, Jesus was lifted up as well. And through His being lifted up on the cross, He draws all men to Him. You cannot improve upon the drawing power of Christ on the cross. Anything that men have devised to try to substitute for that falls far short than a held up from the world and held up from the earth, Jesus Christ. And then, of course, in John chapter 6, there's another comparison that's made. The period of time in which the children of Israel were wandering the wilderness and needed something to eat, and they were provided with manna, or food from heaven, bread from heaven, as it were. And yet Jesus is pictured here in this same context as being the genuine spiritual bread from heaven, and all of us are supposed to eat of it. The spiritual sustenance that's provided by Jesus Christ, we see a type of that being the case back in the days of Moses. And then, of course, the prophecy that's made by Moses himself in Deuteronomy chapter 18, that God's going to raise up a prophet like unto him, and you will have to listen to him in all things. He's going to receive the words from his father. And everybody that doesn't pay attention to that prophet who's like Moses, but not Moses, then he'll be cut off from among the people. Well, that still, that still applies today. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 3, Peter says what Moses was talking about was Christ. The very Christ that you crucified on the cross just a few days ago. That's the same fulfillment of that prophecy made back then. So, there's many different ways in which the Bible makes these comparisons, and we'd do well to see the comparisons can be made. 
We oftentimes will mention the fact that Moses was a lawgiver. Well, so is Jesus. The last will and testament of Jesus Christ is the standard by which all mankind are to conduct their lives. And just as Moses was rejected as a leader, remember they said when he first tried to intervene and a beating that a, one of his fellow Hebrews was, was taken, they said, what are you going to do, kill us too? You know, he was rejected. And so was the Lord. See, Was that a throwing off on Jesus or throwing off on Moses? No. They had their respective works to do. And mankind simply in both instances were not ready for what God intended for them to do. So let's consider the context, the preceding verses that lead up to this particular chapter. And let's see if we can gain some great insight because I'm sure it's there from this particular passage of scripture if you'll begin with me looking at verse 1 of chapter 3 it begins with one of those connective terms wherefore which is therefore or whereupon it's oftentimes been said that when you see a word like wherefore or therefore you ask what is it therefore and because it's connecting something that's been said previously here's a conclusion that is being drawn Here is an application that's been made based upon what has been said right before this. Or what's been said right before this. Well, that would be the end of the second chapter, obviously. And at the end of the second chapter, we have the example given that Jesus took upon himself the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of man. Jesus became flesh. God became flesh. Jesus suffered just as man suffers. Jesus was tempted just as we are tempted. And because of Jesus enduring all those things, because He was in reality, in addition to being the Son of God, He was the Son of Man, then He can, in fact, sympathize and empathize with us. He's been there. He's done that. Now, based upon that fact established at the end of the second chapter, then we have the beginning of this particular chapter. Wherefore, or thence, or thereunto, since it is the case that Jesus sustains this relationship with us because He was like us in that He faced all these things which we do, holy brethren, holy brethren, hmm, that sounds like something exclusive. Sure does. Sure does. Holy brethren would sound like a family but not just any old type of family, a family that is set apart apart for a holy purpose, for a sacred purpose. Well, who do you think he's maybe talking about here? Who's he talking about as holy brethren that are continued on partakers of the heavenly calling? Here are individuals who are partners in something. You see, this indicates that this epistle is written to Christians. Because there's nobody else that fits the bill of the qualifications here mentioned in this first verse. We're talking about children of God. We're talking about individuals. And of course, from the context before and after, we know that the problem that this, that brought about the writing of this epistle was that many who had left Judaism had seen that while the law of Moses was Perfect as God intended it, it was never God's intention for that to be a continual law. But many of those who had learned the truth and had obeyed the gospel, uh, then they were feeling a, a desire to go back to that which had been nailed to the cross of all things. And so they need to be 
reprimanded in that and shown how foolish that is. Moses, great man, but he's not the Son of God. Moses, a great lawgiver, but he's not the Son of God. And he's going to illustrate that from a number of different standpoints here. When he says they're partakers of the heavenly calling, of course, that calls to mind as well, Second Peter chapter 1. We talk about a heavenly calling. Well, what is that? That heavenly calling. Well, it's a calling from heaven that calls us to heaven. That's what it is. Well, how does that calling work? It works through words, through communication. We've been called by the gospel. We've been called through communication in which God's mind was revealed so that we would know what He wants us to do for our own benefit and our own good. That's the heavenly calling. It's a, it's a call to live a certain way while here so that heaven will be our eternal home. That's, that's a heavenly calling. It originates in heaven and it has heaven as its goal, of course. And then he uses the word here, consider. Now consider, of course, as a context helps us to see how significant of a word that is. But here he's using the example of the character of Jesus that he's spoken of in the previous chapter to really dig into and to really think intently about the fact that Jesus is in this position. Since he's done everything that he did in the preceding chapter and becoming flesh for us, do you think that was easy? As he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, if it be possible, let this cut pass. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. You think that was easy facing death? Jesus knew he did nothing worthy of death. He knew it was not, it was not deserving of him to die. But he was willing to lay down his life for us. Couldn't have been easy. You know, if you suffer because you've done something wrong, then you may not like it, but you understand it. But Jesus suffered because of us. He went to the cross, not for His sins, but for our sins. Thus, He is one who can succor those who depend upon Him. So consider, mind these things. Try to understand this matter as fully as you can because it will have a great impact and wonderful motivation to live for Christ if you realize what Christ has done. And then he's identified by terms, the apostle and high priest of our profession, Jesus Christ. Apostle. There is a sense in which every Christian is an apostle. In the sense that we're all supposed to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We're sent. But that's not the idea here, of course. You see... Jesus is the apostle or the one sent to make possible the salvation that's available through him and to seal the covenant of the previous administration in fulfilling it to the T. He is truly an apostle above any other apostle. He's not an apostle in the same sense as those that were, were called by him to follow him. But he fulfills that position as an apostle and as a high priest. Now you can look and we'll see here in a few minutes about Moses. Well, wasn't Moses an apostle in that sense? Well, in one sense he was because he certainly was sent. From the burning bush, the Lord said, Go back down there and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. So he was sent, but not in the same position and not with the same authority 
as is the case in reference to the Lord. Then the word profession here, some translations has the word confession. The idea is more than just what someone says with their mouth. In actuality, it encompasses the totality of religious endeavor because of what Christ did at the end of the previous chapter. Here is the religion of Jesus Christ and all that's involved in it. And we profess and confess that by the lives that we... Not just when we're worshiping, but as we live each day here upon this earth, we are to truly live, as we oftentimes hear it worded in prayers, so that people will see Christ living in us. That's not just a nice thing to say. That's a determination that we all must possess. So that we really can demonstrate to the world what Christianity is because we follow in the footsteps of Jesus. How did Jesus respond to things? That's how we need to respond to things. How did Jesus act in various circumstances? Well, that's how we need to respond in certain circumstances. How did Jesus think? That's the way we need to think. And where do we get that information? Sometimes we fail to remember that one of the first songs that we ever learned was Jesus Loves Me. Jesus loves me, this I know, because I feel it so strongly right here in the pit of my stomach. That's not the way the song goes. The only reason why I know Jesus loves me is because the Bible tells me so. That's the only reason why you know Jesus loves you. is because the Bible says so. It's not because you feel a certain way. If you start depending on your feelings, there ain't no telling what you'll end up believing. But I guarantee it won't be right. And provably so, because it won't be what the Bible teaches. We have to rely on God's inspired Word. Verse 2, real quick. Who was faithful to Him that appointed Him? Now here again, He's still speaking of Jesus. Jesus was faithful to the Father. Yep, sure was. Appointed for this unique position, the one and only position that Jesus could perform. Absolutely. He was faithful in that regard, yes. But notice as well, concerning Moses, he is faithful too. You see, Moses did what God called him to do. Moses was obedient to the will of God down to the minute details of the construction of the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle, the various instruments in the tabernacle, the clothing of the priest. All of that which Moses received by instruction, those patterns, he did them. He was faithful. He's a great man. And of course, those who were having the tendency to lean back on the law of Moses knew that. But they also need to know as good and great and faithful as good old Moses was. Jesus is better. He's superior. And he's going to lay out why that is the case here in this particular chapter. In verse 3, For this man was counted worthy, and again, this man is a reference to Jesus. He is counted worthy of more glory. Now, the idea of more glory is, is greater honor. Now, again, the comparative nature of things was Moses deserving of glory. Yeah. Was he an honorable man that was deserving of honor? Absolutely. But Jesus is worthy of more glory, of more honor, of more dignity, of higher regard 
because of who He is. And here's what He says. As he who hath built the house hath more honor than the house. Now here Jesus is pictured as, a, as an architect. Now there's a whole lot of uh, different ideas that are promoted as if they understand fully what the writer is referring to here. I think he's simply referring to the family, God's family. Who is it that planned, brought about, and started God's family? Well, Jesus was there in creation, very beginning. All was created by Him for Him. See? Now, all the good that that Moses did, and all the faithfulness that he enjoyed, he could not be said to be the architect of the family. He could be faithful in the family. He could be faithful as a member of his own physical family. He could be faithful in regards to the spiritual family, the nation of Israel. But but he didn't design it. He didn't build it. He was a part of it. Therefore, the superiority of Jesus. Two fellows here are mentioned as being faithful, but one superior to the other. And here's why it was, he says. And then, of course, this passage that we oftentimes take out of its context and apply it in a bunch of different ways, which is proper if we understand the background. Verse 4, For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. Okay. When we see the results of a building prospect, a building process, then we know that somebody had to have a mind as to what they were going to do. For years... I don't see no mountain. Every time you come across a mountain before there was 111, there was the foundation for a house. Never got any further than that. Somebody didn't count the cost. Yeah. It was a testimonial to somebody having big ideas, but they run out of money or something happened because all it was was a foundation. Never got any further than that. But yet there was evidence there that somebody had planned on building something. Well, everything has been made by somebody and God is the one who created everything. Verse 5, And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant. Now the word here, servant, is not slave, but one who is given the task of fulfilling a mission. That's exactly what Moses did. He was a great man, but yet he was a servant. And also for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. Now remember, in the days of the Lord, in John chapter 5, verse 46, Jesus said, if you believe Moses, you believe me because he talked to me. Now they had this mentality of who their kinfolks were and their genealogical connection to all those great men. And they had ideas like, oh, we were children of Abraham, never been in bondage to any man. They, of course, were ignorant of history, big time. But if they put on a high level these individuals, then why didn't they pay attention to what these individuals said? And if they really did believe that Moses was a great man, why didn't they believe what Moses said about Jesus? Now all involved in that, in the first five books of the Old Testament, would be everything from the typology involved. That which prefigures what we have in Christianity. Everything from the tabernacle to we even sing songs like we're... Uh, we're going to Canaan's land. Well, I don't care anything about going over there to literal Canaan, do you? But I want to go to heaven. 
And we talk about, and we sing about crossing Jordan. Well, I really don't want to go over and cross Jordan. Literally. But I know that I'll have to go through death, which is typical of passing through and going into heaven. So all the types, all the prophecies, all the fulfillment that we see, Moses had a whole lot to say about that. A great man, but, but he's not the Son of God. Deserving of honor, absolutely. But he's not the Son of God. And then verse 6 begins with the word connecting as well, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are. Who do you think the we are? Well, the we are Christians, Jews and Gentiles. Christ is a son. He's not a servant. Who has more right to say so in a situation like that? The person who's a servant in the house or the firstborn son of the person that built the house? Well, obviously Jesus is is the person that's deserving of that. And he says, as the, whose house we are, and then notice the next uh, conditional word, if. If. That means there's some qualifications necessary in order to be who he's just mentioned here, the house that we are. As a part of the house that we are, as a part of the kingdom of God, the church of the living God, Christians then we have an if, a conditional clause that's mentioned. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Now that's a big if. Now you can boil all that down to say, we'll ultimately arrive safely in heaven one day if we remain faithful. Well, what if we don't remain faithful? You can forget it. It's not going to happen. We'll be able to rejoice with the redeemed of all ages one day in heaven if we stay faithful. You see, the doctrine of once saved, always saved is just as false as salvation by faith only. It's not taught in the Bible. Twenty-five some hundred warnings about apostasy. Why warn about something that can't take place? Well, here clearly we have example given and a encouragement given by the writer of the book of Hebrews, that if we want to remain in a saved relationship eternally, then we have to stay faithful to the end, steadfast to the end, solid and dependable to the end. Not wavering, not wimping out, but faithful. That's the right response to the role that Jesus demonstrated in becoming flesh for us. In the last verses of the previous chapter. And it's because of what he says right there. That then he goes into a long detailed discussion. As to not following the example of the children of Israel. Who wandered in the wilderness. And many died. Sad thing. But yet we see again example given. That just because people have Everything that they need at their disposal. And Israel did. Did you know they did not want for anything they needed? Now they did want for things they wanted. Right after Jesus Loves Me, I've taught my grandchildren this tune. You can't always get what you want. You can't. Israel couldn't get everything they wanted. But they had everything they needed. 
Oh, they got to the point where they said, we're sick of this manna. Take it away from us. We're tired of eating this manna. We want something different than this now. They had everything that they needed. They had clothes that didn't wear out. They had shoes that didn't wear out. We should get that patent today. You just think how much money we can make. They were taken care of with everything they needed. And yet they still became unfaithful. They still were disobedient. They still were categorized as unbelievers. Just think about that. How many times have you thought, well, you know, if I'd I'd have been there and I saw that Red Sea open wide up and here we go marching through on dry ground and I see them walls come back and destroy the armies of Pharaoh. Boy, if I could see something like that, buddy, I tell you, there there wouldn't be no problem with me being faithful. Really? That might be what you think. But you know, there's a lot of people that will say stuff like that and when given the opportunity, they just run right in, fly in the face of common sense and faithfulness. Sadly. You remember what the, what Father Abraham told the rich man in the example of Luke chapter 16? He says, if your brothers won't pay any attention to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to pay any attention to somebody who goes from the dead. you got to be kidding. If somebody went from the dead, you know people would, well, they'd bow down Jesus came forth from the grave. Comparatively speaking, how many pay attention to Him? Few. Few. You see, Jesus even admitted in Matthew chapter 7, in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, few there be that find the straight and narrow way that leads to heaven above. While the many, the, the large interstate, it's going in the opposite direction. Is that because the way's hard? No. It's because it's so difficult that common everyday man can't understand it? No, that's not it. It's because people do what they want to do. And when they don't want to have any restrictions on living what they call a free life, then they'll balk at even a system of salvation that will save their souls eternally. Don't follow the example of the Israelites in the wilderness. Two million died. Now, what about the spiritual condition ultimately of all those people that died? Could, could they, after they realized they were not going to make it into the promised land, they knew their children were, and of course they ended up being able to go in, could they have had a change of heart and repented along the way and, and God would forgive them? Sure. But they still squandered the right to go into the land of Canaan. They could be saved. They could be forgiven. You see, the only too late repentance is after death repentance. Don't let's wait around until it's too late for us. Let's remain faithful as well. There is a possibility that our audience this evening, there are those who've never obeyed the gospel. By all means, if you're visiting with us tonight from the community and you have any questions about anything that you've heard, anything you've observed, then don't leave the building until you ask us about those things. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the reason being is that He is. He's proved to be the Son of God, ultimately by His resurrection from the dead on the third day. If you're willing to repent of your sins, that means 
You make an about face in your mind, which results in an about face in your life. You cease serving self and sin, and you begin to serve God in His will. If you're willing to confess with your mouth what you believe, that Jesus Christ is who He claimed to be, then you tonight can be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Be no greater joy than to assist you in rendered obedience to the gospel. Maybe in times past you did just that, but have wandered away, have ceased remaining faithful, then why not take advantage of the opportunity tonight to be restored through repentance, confession, and prayer. Come back while time and opportunity you have. If we can assist you in any way, let us know how. While together we stand and while we sing.